Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Okay. Welcome to High Theory. Today I'm talking with Neil Safir about the plantation scene. Neil, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Neil Safir. I'm an associate professor in the history department at Brown University, and I work on issues related to Latin American history, history of science, the history of Amazonia and other areas of history that pique my interest as things come along, like the plantation of scene, among other topics. Cool. So tell us, what the heck is the plantation of scene? Well, that's a really great question. And it's a question that I have been asking myself since I came across the term maybe a couple of years ago. And The first thing to say about the plantation Ocene is that it is a very recent thing and a phenomenon, not only in terms of its origins, but in terms of the fact that we are essentially still living in it. Okay. If we believe that it exists, which is a whole other question. The plantation Ocene was essentially invented by Donna Haraway, the feminist uh, critic, but also in conversation with a series of other scholars, among whom Anna Singh, her colleague uh, from UC Santa Cruz, for the purpose of engaging critically with another term that was invented very recently, which is the Anthropocene. And that term essentially uh, came into existence within the last 20 to 30 years or so to describe this geological era that we are thought to be living in, where humans are creating so much turmoil, change, transformation in the environment that indeed it heralds an entirely new geological era. 
out of the Holocene, which is essentially the last 11,000 years or so, humans are taking, taking charge for better or usually for worse. So the Anthropocene is generally thought to have started, well, it, it, there, there, are, there is controversy, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Paul Crutzen is probably the person most associated with the term anthropocene. And he essentially believed that it got going in the late 18th century with the Industrial Revolution, okay. um, when for the first time fossil fuels in the form of carbon began to be used um, as a way of uh, creating industry and creating market economies. And that essentially that created what is now known as the Great Acceleration, where population growth, industrial growth, and generally speaking, uh, domination by humans uh, came to be spread across the, the planet. Some people, because of this kind of arc of the Great Acceleration, think that a better time frame to look at the beginning of the Anthropocene is really in around the 1940s or 50s, when when population really began to explode exponentially and when the traces of human-induced climate change and environmental transformation actually came to be scientifically verifiable. Mm. Um, there's one thing that I read that um, traces to a particular nuclear detonation mm. in uh, the South Pacific in 1946, where you could actually see and verify radioactive particles that, you know, like nothing else, essentially indicated that humans were here to stay and were massively and detrimentally transforming the environment. Okay. So it either starts with the Industrial Revolution or the baby boom. Unless you talk to people like me okay. uh, who are working on projects that are trying to turn back the era of the Anthropocene to a much earlier time. Mm -hmm. One of my current projects and uh, that is, uh, something that I am engaged in and inspired by archaeologist of the Amazon River region is looking at when human populations in the Amazon, among other places, began to create anthropogenic changes to the environment. And that brings up a whole host of other questions. But essentially what it does is it creates agency for the original inhabitants of the Americas in terms of the way in which they managed their particular environment. Uh, so that looks back more clearly at the origins of agriculture and the origins of other ways of thinking about human engagement with the natural environment. Cool. Okay. And what about the Plantationocene? So the Plantationocene was developed because many scholars believed that the Anthropocene very much unfairly attributed the blame for the transformations in the environment caused by human activity to all human beings scattered around the planet, when in fact it was particular societies and particular groups of people who really were the drivers behind this kind of change. And they pointed to the plantations and the plantation system mm -hmm. as an incubator, really, 
of these kind of devastating ways of transforming the planet's economy and ecology through racial capitalism, through exploitation, not only of plant life, but also of human life. And it was a way essentially of really seeing the origins of the predicament that we are in ecologically, not through communities in places that are still relatively unindustrialized, mm-hmm. but rather putting the blame squarely on those processes that saw massive capital accumulation, massive participation in the brutalities of the slave trade and slave regimes, and the creation of these kind of monoculture environments that made us prone to the kinds of ecological devastations that we're seeing all, all over the place today. So that really was the origin of these reflections by scholars really within the last 10 years and the kind of birth of the plantationocene as an interpretive mechanism for seeing the history of the present day as well as the past. And that's actually a very important component. The plantationocene is very much with us today. Mm. And plantations, they're now fewer slave-based plantations in the Caribbean, but palm oil plantations exist in Indonesia and elsewhere that are really seen as the kind of modern day offspring of this brutal system. So then thinking about how these terms apply to our present, how do I use the plantation ocean? I think that in some ways, the best way to use the plantation ocean is to get us out of the plantation ocean. And certain scholars, uh, Judith Carney among them, have really pointed to the fact that there was resistance to the plantation ocene from the very get-go, especially on the part of small African and African-descended cultivators who were creating subsistence environments for themselves and their allies that um, were alongside the broader plantation schemes. So I suppose that one way we could think about, you know, what we need to do today to work against the terrible aspects of the plantation in those scene is by following in the footsteps of those small-scale subsistence agricultures who were creating ways to work against monoculture, thinking, you know, on local and small-scale frameworks, for instance. Although slavery was abolished around the world uh, legally, the regimes that were put in place by that way of organizing labor in these monocultural environments are very much still with us today. Another Anthropocene element is that we all tend to live in cities today. Urbanization is absolutely one element of the Anthropocene that people turn to. And how are we going to be living 90% of us, say, in cities without also having an environment where agriculture and the, the things that we need to you know, consume and live by are coming from elsewhere? We cannot we cannot live in a system where each of us has enough space to be able to cultivate what we need to live on if we choose to live in cities. Harder to do subsistence agriculture in Manhattan. 
Though I think there are people trying to grow things on rooftops. There, 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 there are, and it's and it's wonderful. It's just that the scale doesn't make any sense. I might say, you know, a kind of an ecological pessimist. I started my life post-college working at the Sierra Club in San Francisco, feeling very optimistic about the possibility of massive transformations in the way that we behave. However, you know, I look at the way that humans behave over the course of history, and it's hard for me to imagine that we're ever going to get enough concerted change to happen that would be able to reverse the trends that we're unfortunately seeing all over us. Although I did just see at the wonderful Lincoln Park Zoo here in Chicago, the very famous quote by Jane Goodall saying that a few people getting together with a good idea can change the world. In fact, nothing else ever has. Then maybe on this note of Pessimism and optimism going hand in hand. Let me ask you our final question. How will the plantation of scenes save the world? Well, I think that recognizing that we can think about new ways of understanding our relationships with the planet, with plants with people who help to create those environments or cultivate those environments to the animals and insects that inhabit those environments can be at the very least a step in understanding that our relationships with those different categories really need to change. I think the advantage of a term like the plantation scene is that it doesn't fit comfortably in one area of understanding. It is not just an environmental term. It is a social term. It is an ecological term. It is an economic term. It is a racial term, and it is a human versus non-human term. The advantage of plantation studies is that it has taken every aspect of this frightening, in many ways, institution, and examined it from the inside. I think that the best examples of those kinds of studies can really help you know, individuals, not only scholars, but the broader public, to understand the dynamics of the world and the systems that we're living in, and hopefully the ways that we can individually help those systems uh, to change in our own communities but also on a much more broad, uh, hopefully global scale. Yeah, and I really like the idea that, because I think so often in political discourse, um, the environment and labor get strongly separated. I really like the idea that if we were to reform our labor practices, even sort of conceptually, but I imagine also politically and socially, that if we were to reform our labor practices, then that might contribute to the sort of optimistic reversal of ecological devastation that you imagined as a, you know, post-grad Sierra Club member. Exactly. No, I, I, I always uh, think back on a book that I read in actually in high school, I think it was the last year of high school, B.F. Skinner's Walden Two. Okay. Where Skinner essentially imagines a kind of utopian community where activities are meted out based on a labor 
quotient, but also based on how pleasurable they are. So that the most pleasurable activities, which can include gardening, for instance, Mm -hmm. are understood as labor. You just don't get quite as many points (laughs) as you do if you were I don't know, say washing the dishes or doing other kinds of much more, you know, less appealing sorts of activities. I think about that in the world that we live in today and think that, you know, there are people who say, you know, working in old age homes or, you know, in hospitals who are doing work that is, you know, incredibly uh, challenging in terms of the hours, in terms of the emotional burden, and that they are getting paid a fraction of what other people do for jobs that are much more pleasant, like, say, being a university professor. And I think that, you know, that's really in many ways where I could see a reform, which is giving people who are required or obligated to do more demanding, uh, less fun, less glamorous work, more credit rather Mm. than less credit, i.e. less money for that work would be one way, I think, of reforming some of the ways that we think about wages and labor in our world today. Nice. I think so, too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cool. Let me thank you for coming and speaking with us. Thank you so much, Kim. It was a delight to reflect on these questions with you. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonic Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio. And Sharonic Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.